Hello and welcome to Coffee and Consoles, the show where we look at some of your favorite songs from the musical and engineering side. This week's episode, Tighten Up by the Black Keys. All the fuzz. Kevin, how you doing today? I'm doing A-OK on this overcast and rainy day here in Nashville. Yeah, it's pretty crappy out around well, here today. At least we have Very power. dreary. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's just go ahead and get it out here. Uh, this episode is round two. Of round two. <laughs> for this Black Keys episode. We did it back initially... We meant to do this, and I guess it would have been mid March. Is that correct? correct? I can't even. I can't even remember. It's been so long. I know. Yeah. What is time? So we did it's it then. Kind of, yeah, it was towards the beginning of when kind of lockdown started to go into place, and you know, staying at home. And so that was the. F- I think it was the first time that we were both recording separately, if I'm not mistaken. First yeah, it was time. our first attempt. Yes, it didn't go well. <laughs> we didn't come out with a great sounding, uh, doable episode. So, well, I blame it on Skype. Redo. Yeah, why not? I blame Skype. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, as we're saying, yeah, this is round two for "Tighten Up" by the Black Keys, and quite a bit has happened since when we first tried to do this episode. So. Shall we start with a toast to the roast, my friend? I think I think we shall, as is customary for the Coffee and Consoles podcast. Yeah. A toast to the roast. Maybe the most rocking toast to the roast song yet. <laughs> yeah, some fuss. So, uh... So I got here a freshly brewed cup of some white bison, white bean coffee. Yeah. Um, For those who may not know, my wife and I were in temporary abodes right now. We're actually staying at a friend's place in a different area of Nashville. um, Who our friend isn't even here. He actually has not been here for the past two months. He's been stuck down in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I may have. Given him a shout out in a previous episode. I believe you did. So he's, yeah. So uh, there's a white bison just down the street that I've kind of, you know, driven past a couple times, you know, a couple drive throughs, especially this past week when we had no power due to a couple storms, um, about three nights total of no power, like two and a half days overall. That's that's pretty, uh, that's pretty long time in a lockdown. Yeah. I know. So it's, you know, made a couple drive throughs to that white bison. And this is their Prairie Sun Light Roast. Okay. I, I have, just opened it up. Mm-hmm. I have the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm actually just drinking Javalia Espresso Roast. Ooh. But I'm only <laughs> drinking it because I have to drink it to get rid of it. I bought it for espresso martinis. Mm hmm. 
and espresso martinis. How did those turn out? They they turned out okay. We we only drank like maybe maybe th- only three or four was made between the the three or four of us. We each had about one. Um, which that being just my wife, my friend Tom, who's staying with us for the last month or two, and uh, his girlfriend. And nice. then we haven't drinking it since. So I was like, well, I should get rid of this before I, I roast some more of my own. And I got to be honest. To be the case sometimes when you like get something specific for like, you know, it's like a certain type of cocktail or specialty drink and you do it the one night and then you don't make it again. <laughs> it's, it's not great. I got to be honest. It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> strong and bitter, but like, you know, it's all right. It could be worse. It could be. If there's one thing 2020 keeps uh, teaching us is, you know what? It could be worse. And then it gets worse. And then it gets worse, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, well, it could be worse than that. Like, oh, yeah? How about murder hornets? <laughs> yeah, I'm almost, I'm almost afraid to say it could get worse. Because I, I know yeah. it can. I don't want to jinx it. I haven't have have you like kept up on the mur- murder hornet thing because I, I really haven't. Is that kind of difficult to say? I just realized that as it's, I was saying it out loud. Yeah, it is kind of hard for me anyway. But I'm classically yeah. tongue tied, so yeah, me me too. Which is great for two people doing a podcast. I was gonna say ironic <laughs> that we're yes. doing a podcast. Yeah, death hornets would be easier. I think. Yeah, but murder hornets just it just looks so. Like just deadly in print when you see that, but I don't think it's really a big thing. I think there was like when I last heard, like two of them were found in the state of Washington, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, well, I mean, we no, we were like also kind of saying that about them. coronavirus in in January. <laughs> yes, but hopefully no, these only are like two contagious. people. Yeah, only two people in the state of California and Washington have it. <laughs> yeah, I know. that turned out to be pretty false, as we know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I mean, so a little. Uh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say with the whole uh, coronavirus pandemic thing, I had just recently uh, finished a book that was a uh, birthday gift that my wife ah. got me called Station Eleven. And anyone out there who might know about the novel, um. It's pretty new. I don't think it's that old, to tell you the truth, but it's about a uh, highly contagious virus that breaks out and oh. spreads across the world, but it's, you know, it has like a incubation period of a couple hours or so, and, you know, you, you die within a day, So and it wipes out 90% of the population. <laughs> oh, dang. And so, you know, they're all that kind of on the extreme end of things, but everything else within the story is just like... Oh, yep, yep. Uh, that happened yesterday. Yep. Yep. Oh, oh, there's a shortage of toilet paper. Yep, that's already happened. It's oh, like uh, you suspiciously know. accurate. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, just all those like small little nuanced details that you wouldn't think of right at first, you know, when, you know, a virus pandemic, you know, sci fi story. I guess it's not sci fi, but, you know, the kind of dystopia story that you typically here right it's a great read uh very depressing though (laughs) and after i finished that earlier this week when we were in the middle of having no power here 
And it's let's just say it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Great until about 7.30-ish is when the sun finally set. And after then, you're like, well, it's either a light a bunch of candles or go to bed. Yes, there's nothing much else I could do. But So have you been waking up at yeah. like 5 in the morning? Uh, we did. Uh, there was one morning that <laughs> we were both up. It was, I think it was like 6, maybe 6.30. But okay, not so bad, not so bad. Not, yeah, not terrible, but... But you went to bed so early, oh. it was like you got 10 hours of sleep anyway. Yeah, I know. But that book is, I would not recommend that for someone to read during this time, and especially if you have lost power too, because you're just about to ready to like throw in the towel. Like, well, this is it. This is the end. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like well, the world's about to collapse any minute now. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they've felt. I'm. I'm sure every generation has had stretches of time that has felt like that, though. You know. This yeah. Is, oh, this yeah, is our true. particular burden to bear for this generation. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, hopefully so. Hopefully, nothing worse happens. We'll see. Yeah. But uh. I mean, yeah. But you're right. Like my parents' generation. I mean, they grew up. You know, born in the mid '50s, and you know, as kids, the whole, you know, nuclear call. You know apocalypse, you know, threat, you know, between, you know, the Cold War was starting to emerge and, you know, the whole, you know, bomb drills that you would do in school, you know, <laughs> yeah, actual was... like nuclear bomb drills, not, you know, phoned in bomb drills that right. sometimes happen these days. Yeah. So they had that, you know, threat of, you know, nuclear holocaust, I suppose, going on. I think, I think we'll... I think it'll be a couple of years before everything returns to exactly the, the way it was, say, last year. And I don't think it'll ever be exactly the same, but I think we'll have a sense of normalcy after we kind of get get a vaccine and get herd immunity, and then it'll just kind of be like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> but but I, I hope so. I hope so. I do think I do think our industry is gonna gonna be taking a pretty big hit here for the next year and a half like i don't i don't foresee myself doing more than like 20 or 30 gigs maybe just during the summer months and then you know i think everything will be shut down again if we're even lucky enough to have the gigs during the summer months frankly we'll uh we'll see i mean right now i know we supposedly have something uh popping up in june but you know We'll see if they happen or not. Like it could be more like seasonal things. Like yeah, like okay, you have a couple months of the summer for gigs, and then fall comes up, and you have a rise again, and self quarantine happens again, and some more temporary lockdowns, and then maybe midwinter or early spring, you have another little break. Who knows? But, right, just cycles of mm. infection and keeping the numbers down, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, on the uh, opposite side of the spectrum, I bought a bike. Nice. <laughs> and have been have been biking. I think I think 2021 John is going to be year of the half Ironman. Really? I think yeah, I think so it would give me it would give me like over it'd be uh what month is it? I've lost track of the month. It's May. I don't know. June, it's July, like August, September. It would give May, me about. November, um, I think. Yeah, yeah, it would give me about uh, a year and four months to to train for it. To do it, so. So what is a half Ironman? 
So a half Iron Man, or I guess they don't really call them half Iron Mans. I found out they call them Iron Man seventy point threes, or something close to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm it, it's seventy point something or seventy two or you know, but basically it's like a mile and a half of swimming, fifty six miles of biking, and then thirteen point two miles of running. Wow, you, you that's do, it a takes lot of miles. Five to six hours. To complete, so. So we'll do they happens. do that around here, or would you have to go somewhere? Is that Chattanooga? A... Chattanooga. Oh, I gotcha. So we'll see. Just I a got a couple down the road. A couple. Yeah, hours. I got. I got a couple friends who want to do it with me. So I have uh, inspired some some craziness among among my friends. You know what? You you go for it, my friend. I believe in you. I mean, I have nothing better to do right now other than ride ride the bike and and run around all day so yeah <laughs> although i guess i was telling you before there is there is the possibility of returning to the studio here in the the next couple of weeks so if that happens i'll still be able to run around and bike and stuff cuz usually that's like a a 10 to 5 deal deal yeah so. that'd be awesome yeah you had mentioned you might be back in the studio yeah i mean sooner than you would think yeah, maybe a little sooner. It, it, all the logistics and stuff have to work out for it to actually happen. So I'm not exactly holding my breath, but we, there are we are talking about it, making making some uh, some tentative plans. So we'll see, I guess. Perhaps by the time this very cool comes out, we will have gained some clarity on that. Good to hear. But well, uh, speaking of the studio. Shall we talk about these two boys from Akron, Ohio? Yes, the Black we shall. Keys. But in one second. Yeah. So the Black Keys tighten up from their album Brothers from year 2010, a simpler time. And even by then, that was their sixth studio album. With a great album cover, too, I have to say. Very simplistic and ingenious album cover. And I, uh, I think this is my choice, Tighten Up. Tighten and up. I pit, uh, picked it because I remember when it came out, the album came out, and I heard the tune. I'm like, this is, I mean, it's a cool rocking tune. It has some cool sounds, some cool fuzzy sounds, very guitar-centric Um a lot of kind of hooky riffs to it and super useful for teaching lessons too as a from a teacher's perspective like for a beginning student and maybe beginning moving into the intermediate level like getting them to um, work on like pentatonic scales on the guitar and some different positions and bar chords this is uh-huh. a great more modern song that uses a lot of that very effectively and very musically satisfying, too, you could say. <laughs> so, um, the Black Keys. Two fellas, Dan Arbach and Patrick Carney, who both live here in Nashville now, if I'm not mistaken. I know Dan Auerbach does for sure, because his studio is here, called Easy Eye. I'm Easy not, Eye, yeah. I, I can't confirm if Patrick Carney does or not, but it would... I mean, it would make sense if he did. Yeah, I would 
think so. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they moved here to Nashville right around the time when this album came out. Um, most of it was recorded at the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Um, mm-hmm. But they didn't do any recording in Nashville, though, from everything I gather. Yeah. And uh, I remember when we first tried this episode, the first time through, uh, I talked a little bit about the producer on this song. On um, This is the only track from the album that was produced by Danger Mouse. And at That's the right. time, you, were, uh, you hadn't heard of Danger Mouse. I had, had you, not. Kevin. And I actually yeah. forgot that he produced it since then. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all new again. <laughs> this, it's, like, it's like Groundhog Day over here. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about Danger Mouse. Or uh, his real name, Brian Burton. Um, Danger Mouse. Cool stage name. So I remember hearing of Danger Mouse back when um, an old college buddy of mine named Ian showed me on a CD uh, back when you were know, we still passing around CDs to like hear new music and everything. Of this, like it was a mix album that Danger Mouse had done when he combined Jay Z's Black album with the Beatles' White album and called it the Gray album. And Naturally, he took you know all the you know the lyrics, the the rap tracks from Jay Z's album, over musical tracks created all from the sounds from the Beatles' White album. So every single sound, musical note, chord, drum, snare hit that you heard was sampled from the White album, and you know some of them were very obvious, you know where they came from, like oh that's you know my guitar gently weeps you know that's the piano from that track others are you know either sped up or chopped up very obscure you know sample sounds that you wouldn't be able to you know pick out and decipher where they came from so it's pretty cool um and you know some of the tracks are stronger than others um if not mistaken from memory the one that uses my guitar gently weeps was really cool um i think the for the track 99 Problems is a strong one too. And others are a little, you know, maybe a little so-so. But so that's what kind of gained his uh, you know, gained some notoriety for him and you know got his name in front of a lot of people. And since then, I mean he's gone on to form Narles Barkley with CeeLo Green. And of course, they had you know a couple big hits, most notably, you know, the song referred to as Forget You. Which, you know, whenever we played at gigs, you have half the crowd want to sing the original lyric versus the other half of the crowd. <laughs> it's a beautiful mush of profanity. Yes. For and- you, <laughs> yeah. Um, he's also done uh, albums with James Mercer from The Shins as a group called Broken Bells, which is really cool stuff. I really enjoyed that album. And he's done work with uh, the rapper MF Doom, one of my As they call themselves, Danger Doom, which is another cool, uh, back in my, I had a little hip-hop phase in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, thanks to some other friends. Um, a lot of uh, jazz friends you know, were kind of like into hip-hop, and Danger Doom, the album that he did, really cool, as it referenced and used a lot of stuff from uh, 
Aqua Teen Hunger Force from Adult Swim, you know, back mm-hmm. in that, that cartoon show. A lot of cool samples and use of the characters' voices. Very cool album. But anyway, so that's a little bit about Danger Mouse. So this song was their most successful single to that point, even though they had been together since about 2002. So, you know, you're eight years into a, you know, a band's career, which, I mean, is longer than some bands have even lasted, you know. (laughs) Yeah, the, the Beatles were about to break up by then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they at this point they finally started to gain some, you know, mainstream attention and some mainstream success. And the album Brothers sold over one and a half million copies worldwide, which that's pretty good. Not it's about a, a million and a half more than I have. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was a kind of like a st- not, not a statistic, but a little uh, tidbit that I came across that they, you know, they gained, uh, you know, great exposure, exposure from this album. And that year, around like 2010, um, they were the most licensed band off of Warner Brothers records. So you had, I mean, you're hearing their songs and commercials, you know, not just the radio, like, you know, like in movies, and look, like thinking back then, I remember that like there were a lot of times when I, you'd hear that kind of cool, sort of kind of garage, kind of lo-fi, kind of oh, using trashy, but in a in a good sense, like kind of trashy blues or you have garage rock sound that you know was a uh, kind of in the zeitgeist, and they were definitely at the head of that. Yeah, it kind of shows that there's more than one way to skin a cat. If you're a band, there's you can make money in different ways. Which is, which is cool. They survived for eight years doing that. Yeah, and you know when they started off, they were just. I think one of them said oh, we were just playing old blues ripoffs and you know singing words made up on the spot. You know, just kind of a <laughs> guitar and drums, which is kind of interesting. You don't usually have many bands that are. You know, they stick to just being. Yep, the two members are you know, singer and guitarist and the drummer. No uh, official basis. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like, uh, I mean, some uh, contemporaries over there is like the White Stripes, funny enough. Similar setup. Yeah, they, Guitars, drums, and a singer. <laughs> it means they get, was it, uh, 17% more of the uh, revenue if they don't have a bass player? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Instead of having to split things up three ways, we can just divide it between us. Let's see. Yeah. What is if if every album costs ten bucks? Then we're talking mm-hmm. about fifteen million. So seventeen percent. It's it's yeah. two point five million. I mean, of course, you know, there are other things that take a chunk out of. That's not how much money they make, but no, you know. yeah, all the advances and. Just saying, if if someone was like, "Hey, Kev, you can either have two point five million dollars more, or you can include this bass player in your band," I would be like, "I'll yeah. hire the." Who wasn't player. there at the beginning? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll just hire a bass player. <laughs> I'll give you a hundred bucks a show. Good deal. And a lot of exposure. Yeah. <laughs> All those exposure but bucks are uh, doing a lot of musicians good these days right now. <laughs> yes, they are definitely, they can pay for their meals with them. Yeah. Pay your rent with all that exposure. I was going to say, say the maybe they can pay their power goes. bill, but maybe they don't have power bills because they haven't had power. Yeah, yeah, around here. Yeah, Nashville just got hit. As they were saying, uh, the local electric service was saying, like, this is like the worst outage that they've had. Yeah, the, the tornado caused 50,000 residents to be without power in Nashville. And these last couple storms that all hit really close together sequentially, like within mm-hmm. a few days of each other, I, I think 130,000 people lost their lost power and 100,000 of them were expected to not have power for the entire week. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot. Woo. Nashville's been That's what I've heard too. And, and you know what's crazy is my house has survived all of it. I haven't lost power once. Yeah, I can't believe it. Because um, we have a friend who lives literally about not even five minutes away from where you live, and he lost power. I, saw I don't know on, what to say, man. I guess, on I guess I'm good lucky like that. Yeah, I saw our, our friend Max was out there with like a, oh, not a like, oh, what's a, not a blowtorch, but like a little sterno heater, or you know what I'm talking about? Um, I think so. Like a little gas-powered... Uh, you're like frying eggs on a on a skillet outside. <laughs> you know what's crazy is Max actually lives probably less than a mile from me. He lives actually behind my house, which yeah, and takes me like, about a minute out by for car. A couple days it seemed like. Yeah, so I. Uh, you've been. I lucky don't know, man. With the I, guess, I must be like I must be like siphoning power off the churches around my street or something because <laughs> it, like, it seems like I never lose power when I should definitely be losing power. Hey, I won't complain. Mm. No complaints here. Yeah. So, so no let's get into um, Titan Up. What do you feel like jumping into? Oh, Some, I like, don't the know. The recording sounds? Yeah, or, well, uh, I guess we could talk about... Side. I guess we can talk about how um, popular it is these days to layer in samples with real instruments. Because to my ears, yeah. I definitely hear like a sample drum kit that's combined with like the live take. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, have you have you or any of the bands you've you've played in ever kind of mess with that? Uh, not that I can recall outside of using which i think probably the the two most common practices would be sampled snare hits that you you know layer over with like you know the real snare hits from you know a live track and then also like sub kick you know like you know like almost like an 808 sample for the bass drum yeah so extra low yeah there's definitely that kind of sub kick um 808 type sound in this recording if you listen it's not it's not like every kick drum hit either that's the cool thing about about kind of layering the samples is you can kind of choose when you want to emphasize certain parts of the groove Mm -hmm. and you can almost make it into its own musical bit 
in and of itself. Um, I will say the tricky part about samples is that a lot of times all the velocity will be exactly the same. And so it'll sound super like robotic. And so the way to get yeah. over that, if you're, if you're looking for a little trick is you could use clip gain and go through each individual sample, you know, one by one by one, which would be hundreds of times in a song, be take forever. You could, you know, clip them and then put down the clip gain and, or up and create different dynamics that way. But the quicker way to do it is there is actually a tool called the pencil tool in mm-hmm. Pro Tools, and you can set it to the grid, and you can have it. You can actually just draw amplitude changes all at once, and you can even randomize it. And a lot of samplers actually do have like a humanized feature. So yeah, I was gonna say yeah, there's like a you know, humanize or just like some random option that changes it up enough so it's not so robotic as you said. Yeah, so so there it's possible that if if it's a like a good sample that's probably already been done, but um if not then you can use this little tool and really quickly go in and kind of randomly make you know the samples louder or softer. Just I mean slightly. We're not talking about huge jumps here because that would sound weird and you'd be like that person's a bad drummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. we're just, just talking uh, about DB or so. Yeah, to add to what's already there to enhance, add a little more spice, enhance. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And since you know this was produced by Danger Mouse, I would wouldn't be surprised at all that oh that's yeah. going on. Just like what you said with the, especially with the drums, you know, because yeah, it has they have that very sort of tightly compressed maybe like you know overdriven sound on the I was going to say it sounds to me like they really really messed with one half of it and then kind of let the other half more more natural so you get this layered of this normal sounding drum kit with like this hugely like compressed and distorted kind of like mangy rocking sounded drum set. And then yeah. it's cool because the two together, you get the power of all the distortion and, and craziness going on. But then you also get the clarity of the normal drum set, which is important because if you without the clarity, it's just mush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just kind of sounds like a, you know, like it kind of had like to my ears, it's like in a, shack almost in this way. I just picture like the drums in a shack it, and you kind of just get this you know kind of a yeah <laughs> it's like, noise it's like if you're listening it. to someone play drums over the phone <laughs> yeah oh, that's a better way to put it yeah or like an AM radio sort of a yeah. thing a <laughs> which is a sound but not always a sound you want yeah not just that like you have that as part of it and then you as you said, enhance it with, you know, lower end and, you know, more high end from the actual drums. Yeah, the other really I think important I, thing. Oh, uh, sorry, you, you go. Sorry, we're, oh, we're dealing with a was, delay here from the phone. That's why we're kind of Yeah, just a little bit of a delay. <laughs> no worries. Um, I think I had mentioned last time when we went through this, you know, once before that I was wondering if maybe Danger Mouse just sampled what Patrick Carney played on the drums, 
even to the point of just like creating his own track from how you know maybe Patrick played through it, and then he kind of like you know spliced and copied and pasted you know along with you know modulating some of the sounds if you were um, because like the drum beat to a lot of this song almost feels like that it sounds like there's a fill almost every measure of music all those like extra snare hits kind of are like would be like a fill to a lot of drum play, drummers that they would do but they would only do mm-hmm. that maybe every four measures or every eight measures or so not literally every measure right. so because of that repetitiveness I feel like maybe if um, he went back and just like sampled the drums like as he would if he was like sampling off an old disco album to you know create a track yeah and that's definitely something that you know is popular so it wouldn't surprise me at all it's almost easier than trying to find a drum loop to like match the song you're trying to create you know yeah it's when you have the the drummer there exactly but uh yeah i mean the other really important thing about samples is the sense of space with them you have to make sure they have a good sense of space or else again they can they can sound super artificial and just i don't know it's whenever you get something that's like super dry in in a sense of like reverberance um a track without reverberance is called dry i guess that's slang but um so you get a track that's super dry and like it's everything's on the grid and there's there's no dynamic change it's super like weird <laughs> it like makes you uncomfortable almost oh, it makes me uncomfortable anyway uh, so. i get that i kind of relate it to um like movies that didn't have a big budget for cgi and there's obviously things that were green screened or you know like a, a cgi you know like alien or that sort of thing that looks very cartoony and or plasticky yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, <laughs> like that from like the, they didn't get the full a, render a of the character. System. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like especially when you can obviously tell like MIDI piano sounds or MIDI. Oh yeah, piano. Especially MIDI, MIDI guitar sounds are just awful that stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Yep. And that's hard too because there's so much variance in time with guitar. Even like drums, you have variance in time, of course, because we're all human, but it's like you know, beat one is supposed to happen on beat one. With guitar, you have very nuanced playing, and de- depending on what style, you know, you could, you know, be sliding in and out of, of the the measure and whatnot. So, yeah, it's a very Mi- imperfect instrument, which makes yeah. it harder to sample. MIDI guitar is dread. It's dreadful. I don't think I don't think I've ever done a project that's kept MIDI guitar on it. I've we've done it as a placeholder. But sure, never as yeah, a, that as a final. Yeah. So, MIDI <laughs> samples. It's all. It's uh, all fun. What does MIDI stand for? Oh, we trivia of the, the day. Yes, I, I don't know. I forgot. It yeah. is. Uh, oh, oh crap! Uh, musical something digital interface. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> We're gonna find out in about two seconds through the power of Google, musical instrument, yeah. physical interface. Instru- okay, yeah, I can't believe I forgot instrument. Yeah. Come on, John. 
I know. Yeah. Ooh, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to talk 70s? about like like the this? Speaking of space, like the, I guess the ambience or the space of this track, like oh yeah, well with the the guitars and the bass along with the drums and or the vocal effect that's going on. Yeah. So, like you said, it was recorded in Muscle Shoals. And to me, it sounds like even though they're they're using some tricks like, you know, drum loops and stuff like that, it definitely sounds like they wanted to kind of keep the spirit of Muscle Shoals in it, if that makes any sense. I know that's kind of a subjective. No, I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, but it, like, it is a subjective statement. Like when you say like, oh, yeah, that really has a lot of like spirit in it. Like what what does that really mean in terms of like actual scientific data that you can prove you can't really (laughs) prove it it's those intangibles within music that some people really like and others they don't like the non-quantifiable aspects of it like yeah where where do you fall or or that or it or it has tone you know where do you where do you fall on that spectrum i fall on like being agreeing that you can tell when it's there and when it's not. And I think some of it just comes with experience, you know, in hearing a wide variety of music and, you know, musicians or singers and, and different styles too. Like, I think if you grew up very kind of a one dimensional in your music listening practices and just listening to one sort of thing, it puts blinders on your ears that you don't realize like what's not there within that music that you're listening to. Hmm. And so then you don't know how to, you know, um, categorize something else like that sort of thing. I don't know. I've been having a, some like, um, like personal discussions with, uh, like newer generations of guitarists out there that are very kind of quantifiable. Like the, it's not about, intangible qualities like touch or tone or creativity. It's more about, I can play this many notes at this BPMs. It's this scale. It's, you know, these specific fingerings, like I'm picking the string just like this. It's very, you know, um, almost like very detailed, like, you know, like a coded performance, if you were like a right. very programmed almost. And, and you just, um, uh, I don't know. It's just like a lot of, you know, Instagram and online uh, guitarists who have kind of, you know, found their little niche within, you know, the, the online world of that, that, you know, a lot of them kind of sound similar, but it's very just, yeah, it's, it's like well rehearsed to the point sounding this like, is there like a human quality that's kind of being forgotten about or overlooked? But then again, on the other side, it's like, I don't know if it's just me growing up to listening to a lot of lesser practiced guitarists. Like, and I think, you know, um, Dan Auerbach and you know, Patrick Carney, you know, are definitely on that side of things. Like they want to try to go for that. I think we used the word authentic last time when we tried to record this, you know, that kind of more authentic sound where it's, you know, it's not strictly perfect and quantized and you know auto-tuned there's you know human inconsistencies still within the performance 
that are there. Like, you know, the guitar playing is very, you know, like fuzzy and, and gritty, but not pure and, you know, very cleanly, you know, not that it's not played well, but it's not, you know, clean and precise or, you know, pristine, if you were. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I think I, I grew up always, like, being drawn more to, the, like, as you said, like, the something that has a, a sound to it. As you say, like, oh, that has a muscle shoal sound to it, you know. What's that mean? Well, it could mean a million different things to a million different people. <laughs> yeah, is it is it the recording console, which was an MCI console in Muscle Shoals? It, was it the room? You know, was it that engineer with that band? It, it it's a it's a definitely a mixture of elements. And to me, yeah. like certain things, like the sound of a room, I know we can recreate that almost a hundred percent accurately and not, I mean, by almost a hundred percent, I mean, we, we can recreate that a hundred percent accurately and at, at least probably 99%. It's a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's so, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's so accurate these days with impulse responses and, and the way that yeah. pulse code modulation and all that stuff works is like, yeah, to tell the difference is near, near impossible. Well, and I, I've even, when I did that live album that was recorded at the Ryman Auditorium, I I used the Ryman Auditorium impulse response. And you can't tell the difference between when I was using the impulse response and when it switches back to the real room mics that was recorded at the time. So like I have some experience like kinda like tricking I guess I guess mm-hmm. we're not really tricking people, but you know, using scientific stuff. Um, to get the vibe. But, like, I also think, yeah, especially when it comes to playing, I think there's definitely less debate about, like, you. De- I, think, I think you definitely need some give and take in, like, precision versus performance, you know? Yeah, I like that, precision versus performance. So, I, I, it, I think it's, we're it's in a, an it. era of more precision versus than, uh, you know, yeah, we definitely going are. for the performance. We definitely are, and you. I, I we could argue both sides of this, I, I suppose, endlessly. Um, it's kind. It sounds like we kind of agree, though. So that's good. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I don't think we'd end up arguing much. <laughs> I I sometimes argue with people who will say things like, you know, this or that is better, because that's not really true anymore. Nothing is really better or worse. It's just all different and it depends what you want so yeah exactly anyway in the black keys they they definitely go for a certain thing yeah yeah authentic is sound yeah a good way to say it yeah that strive for being sounding like it could have been recorded actually you know 30 40 50 years ago versus you know just 10 years ago or or now or sounding like they're just, you know, in the garage, you know, busting out blues licks and, you know, it's just that impromptu, you know, magic happens. It seems like they try to go for that. Which is weird. I don't know if you've ever like recorded a jam of yours and then listened back and been like, oh, I thought this was way better or, or the opposite happens. 
but like uh both yeah both. <laughs> is it, it doesn't there seem to be like a real i guess not issue but a real difference in perception and reality when you're in that moment yeah like, oh, it's yeah, very this great this is great and then nope it's terrible and then the opposite you're like oh man i just wasn't really feeling my playing at all and then you listen back you're like actually that, that was that was good <laughs> It's weird. And again, I think some of that comes from like experience, but even people who've been maybe like, you know, artists who've been touring for decades, I think they can still have a different perspective of what it feels like when you're in that moment, as you said, performing, especially if you're on stage in front of people versus, you know, a little different if you're maybe in a recording studio just by yourself with headphones in. Sure. But still, there's that weird perception of how it was in the moment. And when you listen back, like, oh, that's turned out better than I than it felt because, you know, because it's just everything that's going on from like maybe right before you play a note, you start to second guess, like, do I want to play it this way or do I want to play that note or, or, did I just mess that up? And you start to think backwards, even though you still have to be, you know, still going forward and mm-hmm. all that can affect like how you feel it went at that moment. But yeah, I've, I've had some like nice surprises, especially sometimes if it's uh, years like separated between, you know, like a live recording that I come back across and I listen back like, Oh, that was, no, that was me playing. Oh, that's kind of cool. I didn't, I right. didn't even know I could do that. Or other times, like yeah, that's I that's uh, that's a mistake right there. <laughs> like that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> like that's me throwing up right over right all over that measure. <laughs> I, a time seems to be the uh, great equalizer of, yeah. of all things. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that's uh, that's all I wanted to touch on about the recording. There, I mean. I don't think I could do Muscle Shoals justice right now if we did a deep dive of it. So I'm going to save that for, for maybe next episode or an episode in the future because, I'm, I mean, it, w- it would be worth it just to do an episode about Muscle Shoals. And there's some great documentaries on it if, if, you're, yeah. if you're interested. Um, but suffice to say, Muscle Shoals is a recording studio in, in Alabama that is – responsible for countless hits and it certainly has has a vibe and a, a spirit to the place mm-hmm. and still has a draw to a lot of musicians these days you know both yeah. young and old and, and my own little uh i guess i guess it's not a personal connection to muscle shoals or anything like that but i've been fortunate enough to actually use one of the consoles that has it's a 50% chance that it was in Muscle Shoals. There were two consoles and this is one of the MCIs that came from the came from there. So we don't know if it was we don't know which Muscle Shoals Studios studio it was in. There cuz there's two. Um mm-hmm. so we don't know if it was the real famous one or just the other famous one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's it's a really cool console. Console sounds great. It's 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 a joy to track on. Actually, I really, I really dig the sound. Very cool. Where was that that you were working on it? So it's actually owned by a uh, associate, <laughs> associate like I'm a professional, a friend of mine. Sure, why not? Has a has a studio, 
down We're in, professionals. Yeah. <laughs> We're definitely, we definitely get paid at least. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time we get paid in, in real money and not, not even exposure bucks. But yeah. uh, it's a studio down Not in, right now, in Tennessee. <laughs> That's right. Right now we're just hanging around doing the podcast, which is we yeah. we enjoy doing the podcast anyway, though. That's true. Yeah. So yeah, it's the studio. I mean, for anyone who wants to wants to have that experience, the studio is still there. We can we can go down there anytime. <laughs> yeah, or there. I mean, obviously, maybe not quite now, but. Usually, like, they're open for, like, you know, if someone wants to book time at it. Is that yeah, possible? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I know I know one of the studios, um, Fame, I believe. Oh, I believe someone is delivering a package. Uh, Fame, I think, is a museum now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even so, like, historic RCA Studio B in Nashville is also a museum that has yeah, tours go through it, but tours. you can also go book time there. Like, I mean, not just anyone could book time there, but it is a functional studio still. Mm-hmm. So very cool. Pr- probably the same kind of deal. We should take a trip down to muscle shoals one day, John. I'd love to. I've never been like, I have never I have, been. I, yeah, I had a, uh, guitar student who, you know, went through Belmont who, was from that area and, you know, had some connections that she made over the years. And like, she always talk about it and like, yeah, I get to work with this guy. And, you know, like he used to play on, you know, these albums back then. And, you know, he's helped me produce, you know, my new album and, you know, co-write songs. And, you know, she was all about it. Like, right. That's great. Like, I just haven't made it down there yet. I need to though. If we, uh, we'll do if- a, a podcast recording down there. That would be that would be cool. If if we go by bike, it'll only take us thirteen hours if we don't stop. Yeah, you can do that, and I'll meet you down there. You'll you'll be there in about two and a half hours by car. Yeah, <laughs> we could. That could be even a day trip. That's not that far. No, no, it's from here, not at all. All right, it's on the list. Sweet, it's a date. <laughs> I guess we could bring our wives too. Yeah, yeah. They they could. <laughs> maybe there's maybe there's something for them to do down there because I don't think yeah. I don't think my wife would be too interested in the recording studio. Although that might not be true. She she enjoys going to stuff like that occasionally, not all the time. Yeah, she might say she enjoys it, but really, <laughs> that could also be true. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you think about um, getting back to this uh, the recording? The, the vocal effect. I dig uh, it. I mean, kind of I, has that like almost like bullhorn or like distorted sound going on. It's not, it's not everyone's cup of tea that I could understand why you might get annoyed with it, but it definitely works for the song. And that's, what's most important to me. Like I, it definitely gives a song a thing. It's recognizable, you know, yeah. So, how does one go about get, getting a sound like that? If you like, if you're tracking someone, like I want to have like you know this sort of a sound for my vocal track. Well, you, you wouldn't just track it. That patching way. through a distort. I mean, yeah, distortion. Like yeah, plug well, in after the fact, or. 
knowing knowing them, they definitely like to make things difficult on themselves. So it, it could very well have been on a patch bay. There's a section of it called Molt, and essentially you can create duplicate signals in the analog realm. It's really easy to do in the digital realm. You just copy the you know track cut, copy and paste essentially. Um, but in the analog realm, you, it's a little bit harder. So you have, have to go to this area called malt and then you can malt it out to two different spots and so you could naturally drive a preamp channel or a, whatever you wanted i mean if you wanted to get some uh fet distortion you could you know overdrive an 1176 or maybe have a separate tape machine and overdrive that channel on the tape um so there's i mean a million different areas that you could distort it in or at. So that's one way of doing it, but the much easier way, the way I would recommend to do it would just be record it clean and then do it digitally with some distortion filtering. And, you know, it sounds like there's some delay and stuff on there too. Yeah. Like a, like a, like a slap back delay as we'd say. Yeah, and I probably I probably would keep the original take for clarity's sake underneath it, even if it was kind of lower in volume. Just and so do a under- similar thing of like the combining of the kind of the affected track versus the the more pure initial track. Yeah, that's I think that would be the best way of doing it. Um, but sometimes people just want to do it. We'll, we'll say in air quotes the real way and if that's the case I mean even still you have the original track undistorted and you know mm-hmm. clean so like you just have to live with the distortion sound which is almost better because then you don't spend two hours trying to find the right type of distortion <laughs> you know <laughs> that's true yeah because yeah. <laughs> you're stuck with it in a way yeah so it, it, it would depend on what the artist wanted but but yeah Essentially, just creating a duplicate and messing with it with all different processes would be my preferred way. Yeah, and like the uh, the effect to a vocal like that, I think it's somewhat similar to the comfort blanket of reverb and delay. You can probably throw that in there too. Like, yeah, sometimes like singers might like that if maybe if they're not the strongest singer. Like, you know, it can cover up, you know, inconsistencies in pitch. You know, How you, dare like, you, sir? Dan Auerbach. Like overdrive it or, you know, like, you know, saturate it with reverb, that sort of thing. Not to say this is the case, you know, on this tune at all. I don't think he's winning male vocalist of the year <laughs> anytime soon. <but laughs> well, no, probably not. But, um, you know, his voice definitely does, you know, work with what they do. I mean, no, it, yeah. I, I think he's a Belt out singer. power Very ballads. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right, yeah. though. It's definitely a comfort blanket, I, especially with reverb. Golly, people in their reverb drive me nuts. Yeah, that c- became a kind of like, a, you know, things go in and out, like fads, like, you know, like guitar pedals and effects and, you know, different techniques in the studio. Like about 10 years ago with the whole sort of that almost a neo-folk revival that started to happen or um like the saturated vocal reverb seemed to kind of like 
come to the forefront again. Right. As like a sound, you know. And then, of course, you know, not there's the whole can of worms of auto-tune and just having that as the sound and not a fix to a vocal, but more so like the creative choice and going for the sound of that. Right. But, but uh, Black Keys, they're not really the auto-tune type. <laughs> no, no. And I, I mean, I was poking fun at Dan Auerbach there a second ago, but but there's definitely a lot of respect to be given for for guys who go out there and they, you know, they, they work really hard on, on making their performance the best it can be, which very clearly, you know, this, yeah. that's what they're doing. Like they're trying to make the moment happen, which is, you know, yeah. you got, you got to respect them for that. Yeah. they Yeah, exactly. As you said, make the moment happen, whether live or in the studio and going after that in a sense is raw, even if it is, affected or modulated or distorted still going for like a raw sort of sound because um, mm-hmm. they are in like I don't think I'd mentioned yet like you know, they are definitely influenced by a lot of those kind of early blues artists especially Howlin' Wolf and you know in Robert Johnson but I mean they heck they even have a song called Howlin' For You which is a direct reference to <laughs> Howlin' Wolf so they're definitely uh, trying to carry on that sort of a a legacy, if you will. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the musical side of it. Yeah, it's about time, Johnny boy. (laughs) I'm just trying to hold off. So as I mentioned earlier, like I came to like this song from a teaching standpoint because it utilizes the minor pentatonic scale predominantly. Uh-huh. Which is one of those scales that, as a guitar player, when you start to learn, you almost learn that first before you even learn like a major scale. You know, you know, major scale. Obviously, you know, a pentatonic scale just takes two of those notes away. Thus, penta. Penta meaning five, I believe. Yeah, so it's a five-note scale. You hear it all over the place. It doesn't matter the style, the type of music, where it's, you know, where within the world, like whether it's, you know. You know, like any sort of like a Asian-esque oriental folky thing to bluegrass, to country, to blues, to rock, pop, idiots. It's all over the place. You know, basically the pentatonic scale is like, filtered water of you know from the melodic sense you know, it's what singers will naturally sing it's like mm-hmm. what our ears naturally hear because it's all the it kind of takes out the dissonances that are inherent within our you know classical seven note major scale so this is um, full of cool pentatonic riffs and uh, as we played at the beginning like it has like this longer riff So F sharp minor pentatonic, which if you want to see it from the major key perspective would be an A major pentatonic. Same five notes, just to kind of depends on what you're using as your reference. So it has that. Um, it also has that cool 
whistling at the beginning, which I can't whistle, mm-hmm. but you know, it has that whistle hook at the beginning, which is cool. And then it has like shorter riffs as well, like. <laughs> I completely forgot this song, apparently. <laughs> but no, it, it's, it's really that, you know. And, um, so it has kind of multiple riffs going on all over the place, which is pretty cool. And um, But there's no chorus. I think I, we had another thing we mentioned last time. Like, I relate this song to Uptown Funk of Bruno Mars. Like, you listen to Uptown Funk, it builds to the chorus, but there's no actual like vocal chorus. That's when the horn riff comes in, and it hits, right. and it's big, and it's you know it's. That's why like if you try to play that song without horns or anyone playing that horn riff, kind of like is a little bit of a downer when you get to that section of the song. Um, so tighten up. There's no vocal chorus at all. It's, it jumps to another instrumental hook, and that's kind of a cool thing. It's kind of a makes it unpredictable in a sense you know when her ears are so accustomed to hearing just kind of like vocal not you know non-stop throughout a song from verse chorus verse chorus maybe a bridge and then another chorus or two so that's kind of cool that it relies on the instrumental hooks to carry you through the song and you just have the vocal verses um and with that another interesting point is like you never hear the whistle again which is kind of a, that makes me think that maybe the whistling at the beginning was after the fact, mm-hmm. kind of like after they had tracked all the guitars and the drums and everything, they started to think of like, we need something else at the beginning of this instead of, you know, maybe someone came up with that whistle hook, which is so catchy and like grabs you immediately. But you don't hear it again though, which is kind of interesting when you look back like, oh, that was just at the beginning it's almost like a Chekhov's gun. Like there's a whole uh, writing premise of if you introduce something at the beginning of a story, you bring it back at the end, you know, like thus Chekhov's gun. Like, oh, it comes back. Um, so I think of that as, you know, from a songwriting perspective or composing. Like if you introduce something at the beginning, sometimes it's nice to bring it back at the end. But then other times, if you don't have it, you kind of forget like, oh, that was even, that was there at the beginning of the song. I didn't even, I forgot about it by the time you get to the end of the tune. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the sneaky little part, huh? Yeah. Um, so we have all the minor pentatonic riffs going on. And the, uh, the verse chords are pretty cool. So you have... I said it's an F sharp minor. You have an F sharp minor. You could play it as an F sharp minor seven. Then A major seven. And it's specifically an A major seven chord. It has a little bit more of a, almost like a lift to it. And then B minor. And then a C sharp mm-hmm. major or C sharp seven. And so those are the verses. And it's not until uh, later on at the very end of this tune, 
um, which there's this like kind of like weird, like slow down. It's a very crafty, like almost like an avant-garde transition that takes place. And they go into this outro at a slower tempo. And that's where the, the phase comes in, if you want to talk like effects. So I got this uh, phase patch pulled up in my Line 6 HX stomp. That's what I'm using for these sounds for today. Ah. Hopefully you hear some phase in there. Having uh, to, uh, for listeners, having to uh, record with a live amp in the room because I just had yeah, a maybe, USB maybe, mic uh, and no interface. <laughs> maybe try really exaggerating it like as much as you can. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the face sound. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't really hear it because of how we're talking to each other. But yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's probably I'm enough. sure. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So that outro, it's mainly F sharp minor to C sharp minor. So that C sharp chord's now minor instead of it being with a major third. Oh, hold on, my phone just fell. Uh oh. Having some technical right. difficulties for the moment. Yeah, it's, it's some technical difficulties. My phone fell off the music stand that I had it sitting on it, <laughs> and it pulled my earbuds with it. <laughs> ah, classic. Yeah. Um. So the guitar sounds like very fuzzy, like you know, and I think last time I had pulled up like some gear that. Dan likes to use like they're definitely you know um, fans of like finding old vintage amps like especially like what people might call like you know like pawn shop amps like small low powered or low wattage amps that you can just like crank and get you know gnarly if very specific, but, you know, interesting sounds out of. And same with guitar pedals. Like, they'd have a lot of old vintage fuzzes, along with, like, some newer, like, you know, like, earthquake device guitar pedals as well. Um, so the fuzz that I'm using for this in the HX Stomp, it's called the Triangle Fuzz. And I know it's based off a specific pedal which i'm going to look up right now what this is emulating so that doesn't have anything to do with like the type of clipping that the fuzz is creating oh let's see Yeah, so the triangle fuzz. Yeah, so I chose that because it's based off the the well-known Electro Harmonix Big Muff fuzz ah, pedal, specifically the Big Muff Pi, which um, would be one that they would use. Definitely I actually have that sitting about a foot from me right now. 
Uh, that's right. <laughs> Which you n- never realize, like just looking at pictures, but it's a huge unit. Yeah, a lot of those Electro Harmon X pedals are they're built like tanks, just like, it's like massive green boxes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like half of maybe not half a foot. I, I maybe so though. It's like it's like four to six inches long and like three or four inches wide. It's it's a huge guitar pedal. Yeah, it takes up a lot of real estate on a uh, pedal board for sure. So do you want to talk about like what, in your opinion, makes something be referred to as fuzz versus just like a distortion or overdrive? Is it just uh, more of it? <laughs> yeah, fuzz is like a extremely, extremely hard clip. Um, whereas distortion or overdrive is more of a gentle pushing of of the amplitude. It's how I think of it, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like if fuzz, like uh, if a listener is like picturing like you know just like a a sound wave, you know just like that up and down like sine wave picture like the clipping like essentially like taking the peaks from each side and flattening it is that fair yeah you're you're, you create a square wave so the distortion you hear is is representative represented by a sound wave by essentially your your square it off at the top Mm -hmm. um instead of it being like a nice round sound wave and so a, a fuzz pedal it's like very very drastic it, it looks like you're drawing squares yeah and just so by nature of that it you know cutting the like i guess you know the amplitude which you know can represent the overall volume too mm-hmm. so there's also like that compression of volume as well which i think a lot of like inexperienced guitar players a lot especially when they're playing live they don't realize that turning up like you know say like the gain of a pedal or an overdrive pedal or a fuss pedal like actually like when you turn that on you have to compensate for there's going to be proportionally to a degree like a drop in volume you had you know it's it might be a lot more distorted and when you're just by yourself in a bedroom it sounds louder to an effect but it can kind of fool your ears like when you actually go live or look, look at a you know UV meter if you're able to meter yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's actually softer usually. You have to kind of compensate and <laughs> Yeah, so you you actually trick your brain a little bit because when you distort a sound, you create more har- harmonics, which is one of the things our brain uses to kind of determine um, how loud something is. So you kind of trick your brain into thinking it's a little bit louder. Oh, that's interesting about the, uh, the harmonics. The science, or the, the, science, uh, the, trick. the science could be, could be a little janky on that, but I believe I remember that from auditory perception. Yeah. Yeah. It is really weird how our, uh, brains can be tricked into different things being seeming louder than they actually are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great trick for mixing. <laughs> I yeah, oh, I bet. <laughs> I just remember that, like back in my early days when you know I was still like playing, you know, Metallica riffs in my bedroom and that sort of thing, and you know, learning about the whole like 
smiley face EQ curve when you just, you know, turn up all the lows, turn down all the mids, turn up all the highs. You know, that was for a guitar player, that gives you the Metallica sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, But when you go out, you know, playing a live gig, and with that sound, like, you don't hear the guitar at all. It just disappears because partly there's no mids, mid frequencies. But right, also yeah. just, like, the extreme clipping of the, you know, saturated distortion. Like, there's no, it's that drop in volume, too. Then it's like you have to, like, turn it up extra loud to be heard. And then it just becomes obnoxious because then you have all those high frequencies screaming out of your amp and then at that point and, <laughs> <laughs> and i'm it's like a, no please please turn it back down yeah <laughs> uh, i just remember the days back in these like crappy bars we used to play in in us back when i lived in illinois springfield illinois a place called marley's pub which we probably played there at least once a month it seemed like which are usually, they're fun gigs, but you play until like 3 a.m. It's, it's one of those just drunken frat boy bars that, you know, that every, you know, kind of medium-sized town has. But built-in crowd, good crowd, and so it paid well, and, you know, you make a lot of money off the right. cover of the, you know, the door cover. But I remember just going back to the, uh, the console and seeing the, you know, the, his EQ curve, and it was literally just that, like lowest frequency all the way up. Gradually, those would go down as you get to the mid frequencies, <laughs> and then went all the way back up once you got to like you know whatever, sixteen k or something like that, and like all the way turned back up. Oh it's no! Like uh, just like killing our ears. <laughs> I don't. I Especially, don't know about <laughs> other front of house guys but i always get super self-conscious when people start looking at my eq curves like they're gonna judge me or even care at all about them yeah they go look it's this it's fine it's a smiley face yeah it's it's smiling at you yeah it's all good (laughs) i i uh have noticed that with the smaller sound company guys not that that's it's not that it's a bad thing to be in a smaller company or anything but i've just noticed that most of them tend to use the smiley curve more than say a guy from one of the bigger companies like Claire Brothers or Morris or Spectrum. It yeah. it seems it seems like almost like it's almost a stereotype to me. I mean, of yeah. course no one else would ever even think anything of it, but it just seems like it seems like a lot of those guys it's like their go to curve. And it's, <laughs> it's like you hear the system and you're just like, oh, that's hurting my ears. Like it's really, really bright, and there's a lot of bass. No, you're absolutely right. It's such a kind of an old school, like '80s rock sound guy cliche. Like that's oh, what yeah. that's how they approach sound is they start with that and sadly just stick with it. And that's well, it, it can work well for some things. Uh, and like you know, I I I try to be careful about kind of prejudging uh other other guys's settings because i don't know i you know unless unless you were there with like the band in the same room and the same system and all that kind of stuff you don't really know you're just seeing you're just seeing what they had to do to try to make it sound good and like in the end they're just trying to make it sound good so you know it's all whatever yeah, yeah it's whatever <laughs> 
But maybe maybe I'm just saying that because like I just don't care what the other guy did. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe I'm not actually nice. Maybe I just I just nothing the the job that you they did before care. me and yeah. <laughs> it's not important, so I don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> oh, good times. Yeah. So, um at the end of, you know what? I just realized if listeners are hearing like a little this sound, like a little clicking sound, mm. my pickup selector switch, I keep bumping it with my leg. Oh, how I I'm see. holding the guitar at the moment. I just realized that. That's so all right. I'm sure, sorry I'm for sure the, you'll the be random forgiven. clicks. Yeah. I'm so sure the, we've done worse the, <laughs> sound <wise. yeah. laughs> The lyrics to this tune are pretty cool. And very, you know, they kind of fall into that kind of sort of blues rock tradition. And especially in the fact that, as I said, like there is no like chorus in a sense, which, you know, a lot of blues songs, song form wise, there's no chorus. It's just like a verse that gets repeated. And, you know, if there was like a chorus, it's really just like a line that, that gets repeated every third time. Um, but uh, the lyrics to this and it's where you hear if I'm not mistaken like you don't actually ever hear the words like tighten up in a way you know like that's never uh, brought up lyrically yeah it's not a phrase yeah it's not a phrase it's an actual song but the the, like you can definitely hear like a like a Delta bluesman, like singing these words though, like I wanted love, I needed love, most of all, most of all, especially like the re- repetition going on. It's kind of like a traditional blues practice. You know, someone said true love was dead and I'm bound to fall, bound to fall for you. Or what can I do? <laughs> and then take my badge, but my heart remains loving you, baby child. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they do say tighten up. Uh, tighten up on your reins. Oh, running yeah, wild. Sure running wild. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know. So that's where the title comes from. Sick for days in so many ways. I'm aching now. I'm aching now. It's times like these I need relief. Please show me how. Oh, show me how. To get right. Yeah, it's out of sight. It's almost like a beat poet, in a sense. <laughs> But, you know, like when he's seeing these, especially with those like short repetitions, you know, bound to fall, bound to fall, running wild, running wild. Show me how, show me how, you know, later on, come around, come around. Like that's a very like traditional, like characteristic of like blues lyrics is that a lot of times you'll just like repeat a line once like. Up and down, do, do, do. yeah, up and down. Do, do, do. You Wait, know. How, how'd it go? Um, like, oh, baby, left me. Do, do, do. Oh, baby, left me. You know, it's that repetition kind of like strength strengthens like what you just said, especially if you kind of like accent it a little differently or so. Like, so that's it's almost like you know, like uh, like pastors do in sermons. Like they'll start to you get a cadence going of repetition. I like it, whether it's a one word or a couple words. So, you know, that tradition's alive even in a subtle way, you know, like in the lyrics to this, how they, you know, like wrote it out 
And you can that, tell, like, you know, they learned a lot of blues songs in their day, so they, they notice those things of, like, writing lyrics. And, and sometimes it, it helps. Like, if you're, like, in a pinch or if you're stuck, you know, having writer's block, you can just, like, you know what? Are there any words that I could just repeat? Kind of, like, fill in the space to, you know, flesh out the song. That kind of reminds me of my, uh, my, my blues song I wrote when we were traveling that one day. <laughs> oh, you'd have to remind me of that one. It's uh, it's entitled Sunday Morning Blues, but now, but now I'm thinking I need to go back and add some of these uh, repeated lines. Yeah, so, that's what so you're missing. That's, that's the secret that's sauce. sauce. Maybe, maybe we'll, maybe in our our downtime we can make a version of it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> but we shouldn't promise it because then people will expect it. Yeah, never make promises. <laughs> oh, yeah, that that's interesting. I, I guess if you were kind of listening to Howlin' Wolf and Howlin' Wolf, Howlin' Wolf, and uh, some of the other bluesmen, you would. That, I feel like that would almost be a thing you would do unintentionally until someone pointed it out to mm-hmm. you. You know? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, is like. It's just part of what it is that you don't even consciously know that you're doing it. Right. You may even recognize it until like yeah, it's like twenty twenty vision when you look back at it, like, oh yeah. That's one thing that's going on. Um Yeah, so is there anything else about kind of like the melody or, or anything that kind of is interesting to you? Well, as I said, like the all those hooks are dependent on the minor pentatonic scale, and they're always starting on the root of that, you know. Or the the longer one. Um, but there's a uh, definitely like a a rhythmic cadence going on, which, funny enough, is kind of like the basic rhythm of the drum beat. When you listen to the drums on this record, certainly not by accident. Um, so there's that kind of a consistency and like the rhythm going on, and it go, of course that could just been purely by accident going, <laughs> and you know just like their ears guiding them. Um, but I think it's like a good ex- uh, example of how you can take one sort of simple idea, and that simple idea could just be, and how you can just either repeat that as it does sometimes, like that's like the shorter riff, or kind of expand upon that. You just keep on moving down that minor pentatonic scale as the like the longer riff does. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. like the interesting thing with the, especially depending on some of the fingerings or the positions on the guitar neck, like you can play the pentatonic scale getting by with just two fingers, like you're, index finger in your ring. I know finger. that all too well, John. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't matter which, you know, 
however accomplished you can be. Like pull up videos of Eric Clapton or John Mayer, like live videos, videos of them playing. Look at their fretting hand. Most of the time it's index and ring fingers just dancing back and forth. And like this riff can easily be played with just those two fingers as they you, know, you go back and forth between them. And how the pentatonic scale lays out across the neck is... You know, you can essentially just get by with like two notes on a string. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like a lot of times you can like slide down on one string, and so you're technically you're kind of be like within a three note range, um, but you can still get by with just those two fingers. So it makes it from a mechanical standpoint pretty easy to develop. You know, and get used to the you know the mechanical requirements. But yeah, very catchy though. Like I always enjoyed it. Very catchy, like riff. And they said it's it's not. It's kind of you know there's remnants of like Zeppelin that you can hear. I would say, sure, um, yeah. Especially yeah. like thinking of um, uh, Moby Dick. Which I'll have to do. Uh, There's so like remnants of that sort of like you know again mm-hmm. a minor pentatonic riff. I mean, you hear minor pentatonic all over the case. You know, classic Rage Against the Machine, especially their first album was just uh pristine guitar riffs going on. <laughs> as far as like rock if, riffs, I feel like if you're learning guitar, if you if if you only learn one scale and it's a pentatonic scale, you're gonna be you're gonna be just fine. That's that it will get you by. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, this is coming from someone who only knows a pentatonic scale, but <laughs> I just feel like that scale is so handy. Well, it's the basis for most like musical, like melodic content. So, you know, it makes sense to really know it inside and out. And I know, uh, you know, it's also like the. <laughs> The great sort of, not dilemma, I guess, but the the most common uh, trap that people can fall into too, like all the time from, as from a teacher, like you'll hear students talk about like, I eh, just like, what else can I do? Besides like, I feel like I, you know, just know that the minor pentatonic scale, I was right, like getting right. to a rut. I just end up playing the same thing and again. And that's true. Like I fall into that as well i definitely have fallen into that myself yeah and um and a lot of the times it's not that you need to like learn different scales per se like there's only so many ways you can you know um you know it's all the they're all the same notes in a sense when you get down to it like that a lot of times it might it's mostly uh for guitar players we get so dependent on the mechanical nature of playing like the from the not even technique side, but just like the the mechanics of like our fingers going back and forth that you fall into a lot of times subconscious like routines of how you're moving your fingers across the strings that like you just need to break the routine of how the fingers are moving to open up different avenues of you know even if it's technically the same scale you're playing you're just you're starting to look at it from a different perspective and that opens up more you know creative avenues. <laughs> right, yeah. It's all 
It's all about actually just sitting down and forcing yourself to practice different things. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah, just breaking down barriers that you may not even know are there. Yeah. So, so um, well, yeah, a little, like, kind of end of episode, uh, like, facts about this tune. So the Black Keys, they won three Grammys. Trace, that's right. Yeah, for the best alternative music album for Brothers, the best rock performance for Tighten Up, and they won the best recording package Grammy for the album's artwork, which is that, you know, the fun uh, album cover that just says, you know, this is an album by the Black Keys. Yeah. The name of the album is Brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Super, you know, <laughs> kind of, it's almost like pre-hipster, almost, I guess. <laughs> it is. It's like, yeah, I don't it's know. like definitely uh, an album cover you would imagine, like some indie band releasing today, but they did it like in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But it's very eye-catchy, though. Like, it's just the simplistic font. Like, it catches your eyes, which, you know, back then you were still... Know, browsing, you know, aisles of CDs of purchasing music. Yeah. Even though iTunes was huge by this point, but it definitely catches the eyes. Which, you know, that's all you need—a black backdrop and a a font—and you can win a Grammy. Just ask Metallica. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like we bring up Metallica unproportionately a lot on this podcast. Yeah. But, uh, Probably too much than they deserve. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick a Metallica song. It's going to happen. <laughs> hey, I'll be all for it. I mean, I mean, I grew up on Metallica as a teenager in the early mid-90s. I mean, <laughs> you best believe I learned just about every song off of the Black Album, which at that point was the album that introduced me to them. I don't Even know. Even though that's a, quite a divisive album for... You know, hardcore Metallica fans like you know, I mean, a lot of people really. I will say that it's not my favorite Metallica album, but you would be, you would be a fool to say that that album wasn't absolutely fantastic for the band and their careers. Like, oh yeah, it like uh, people it, who don't like it, they don't like it solely for the reason that it made the band popular, which is a bad reason not to like yeah. the album. Yeah, that whole kind of anti um you know popularity sort of mentality like i don't like to like things that are popular sort of thing that creeps into yeah you know i that makes no sense to me because i want every every project i work on i really hope that people like it and that they like it so much that they want to share it with other people so like i mean yeah music's meant to be shared you don't want to just keep it all to yourself and you know in your bedroom yeah, yeah like the, like that concept is so is so foreign to me but you know what i can understand it if you're if if you're like a, a 14 year old like guy in like the 80s and like metallica is all you got and now all of a sudden your like sister is like listening to them you're probably gonna <laughs> you know be a little upsetting yeah or even if like <laughs> Your dad comes home like, I just heard Metallica do a version of, you know, Whiskey in the Jar. I really, that band's pretty good. <laughs> I'm thinking about going to see them. Here's the what, what? Yeah. <laughs> Which is exactly the case with uh, my wife's uh, 
stepdad. Like he's like, oh, I like the whiskey in the jar by Metallica. <laughs> and he's like an old school, like, you know, country singer, you know, cowboy music, chicken picker. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but well, my friend, we may have shot our bolt on this one. Indeed we have. Indeed we have. And, and I, I think believe this ended up being longer than the initial one was. The first episode, I think, was barely an hour, and I think we're scratching an hour and a half at this point. So Yeah, sorry. Sorry to say how so off track made it we this get, far, listeners. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, shall we wrap this thing up? I think we should. Yeah. My name has been John. And I've been Kevin. If you want to get in contact with the Coffee and Consoles podcast, where can you do that, John? Well, that can be at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. Please send us an email with any song suggestions if you have them or feedback. And you can also find us on Instagram, Coffee and Consoles. That's right. And please leave a five-star rating if you would. Helps people find the show. And that's what we like was when people find the show. So thank you so much for everyone who's been listening. And to our new listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll catch you next time. Indeed, long days and pleasant nights, my friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs>